Encountered a little drizzle on the way in this morning, and we got temperatures bumping around 31, 32, 33 degrees, and your thermometer may not exactly tell you the truth inside your car, because if the road's colder, you could see some icing. So be careful out there. I'm going to make a pledge for 2024 that I'm going to hang on every word that any flight attendant tells me about the exits in an aircraft. I just cannot get over the video of the passengers seeing the, the flames outside the window as they land. Every window. From And here's the other thing. Who on earth, when your plane's on fire, pulls out your phone and starts taping? Well, everyone does that in every aspect of life. Then our world has lost its mind. At that point, I'm looking to, I'm telling my wife, we're going out that exit. That's right. Um, Right, like preparing. I'm preparing, I'm focusing, uh, you know, and I'm getting ready to to roll. Uh, Interesting, Tom Costello did a story about the fact that when this happened, we had an engine fire, uh, and I can't remember the airport, but there was a full evacuation. Everybody got off safely. But they actually had people with their rolly bags behind them. They took the doggone rolly bags down the slide. Um, folks, no. no carry-on luggage is worth your life or anybody no. else's, Absolutely. and you Pick will cost somebody else their life if you slow things down. Exactly. Yeah. You're supposed to get out like the standard is 90 seconds. You can't get your rolly bag out in enough time. And depending no. on where you're sitting, it's going to take you... 10 or 20 seconds to get out <laughs> to get out of where you're sitting and get to the exit. How about looking for an elderly person to help? How about Absolutely. looking for someone with children? With children, to help? right. Eight infants were on that Japanese flight and they all got out. <sighs> God, that would be so scary. Just, and uh, you know, your heart's break for the the five uh Coast Guard uh, yeah. members that were on board the, the flight that was hit. And and there's going to be a, a whole investigation how that uh plane ended up on an active runway. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be a control failure. Or, and if there was ground control radar, somebody didn't check it yeah. or somebody didn't heed the instructions that came from the tower or yeah. from ground control. Um, we had a 1990, we had a collision like that here out at Metro mm-hmm. and it, uh, it, it, it was, it was, we had loss of life then because, uh, I mean, the, 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 the collision, it just dumped jet fuel into the cabin. But, um, anyway, yeah, the, 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 the takeaway is listen to the security briefing or just mentally go through your mind. Uh, which, 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 I'm, if, if the fire's forward, I'm going this way. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, you know, where's my nearest exits? And, and no I'm, one's paying attention when they're telling you how to put the mask on. I wonder if any of us would know how to do it if we had to. No, put the phone down. Yeah. Right. right. And, and, uh, and just, just, or go through your own mental checklist. But uh, it, it, just amazing uh, what, what happened there as we were covering it live, but the video. <laughs> got to help the person that recorded it. I, they, they're lucky they got out okay. Um, a major uh, move by these, well, the Israelis are not taking responsibility for this, but one of the leading Hamas operations people. So this is an architect of death. Uh, Salah al-Ruri, uh, blown up in the streets of Beirut, just outside the Hezbollah offices. Um, everybody's wringing their hands about, well, this could broaden the war. There's a lot of concern this could broaden the war. This could escalate things. Four years ago today, we blew up Qasem Soleimani. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Trump administration said that he was a bad guy. They took him out. Democrats, and I was in Las Vegas covering it at the time because I was there for CES. But mm-hmm. they're wringing their hands. Oh, my God. They're going to retaliate against us. What could happen? You know what happened? They slopped a few rockets at, at, at some of our bases. It was a perfunctory retaliation. But the message was sent, we're not playing. And while Israel isn't accepting responsibility, uh, that's the message they're sending. A guy named uh, Jonathan Shanzer, who is an anti-terrorism specialist now uh, with the Foundation for Defending Democracies, was on Fox uh, yesterday. 
and said, yes, there could be a significant escalation, but not in the way you think. I believe that we're likely to see more of this. Uh, the Israelis are likely to target Hamas leadership in other countries where uh, Hamas has headquarters, such as Qatar, such as Turkey, maybe even places like Malaysia. Certainly, I think we can continue to see this kind of activity in Lebanon. And so when we think about what a wider war might look like, some of this might look like gray zone activity, right, where the Israelis don't necessarily have to take responsibility. But we will see, I think, uh, more Hamas leadership uh, sacrificed after 10-7, so to speak. I think there's going to be a lot more of that. And that, of course, could invite additional provocations from Iran-backed militias in places like Yemen and Syria and Iraq, Lebanon, Gaza, West Bank. So this thing could go on for quite some time. Um, and we do you know the Iran did send a warship into the Red Sea. This mm-hmm. is after there's been this huge diversion of shipping traffic there. Uh, Jack Keane was on Fox yesterday and said, look, uh, first of all, that warship poses no threat to us. The bigger threat is that we're not doing enough to take offensive action against the Houthi rebels that are doing this. It's strictly defensive. And he said that's the larger threat, not this uh, antiquated Iranian warship may learn more by the end of the week about the man accused of killing samantha wool yeah the uh, man charged in that stabbing death of detroit synagogue president samantha wall appeared in a detroit courtroom yesterday for a probable cause hearing michael jackson balanos was charged in december with wall's uh, murder she was found stabbed to death outside her lafayette park home back in october initially a person of interest was arrested in connection with her death but that person was released three days later and then weeks after that arrest Jackson Bolanos was arrested and charged with murder, home invasion, and lying to police. His attorney, Brian Brown, says he believes police have the wrong suspect again because the evidence against his client is circumstantial at best. But prosecutors say evidence shows that the 40-year-old Wall returned home from a wedding and was stabbed while sleeping on her couch. According to authorities, the evidence linking Jackson Bolanos to the crime includes Wall's blood found on his coat. Now, authorities say there was no forced entry at Wall's home, but have since specified that her door was left unlocked after she Mm -hmm. attended the wedding the night before. And during yesterday's probable cause hearing, prosecutors said more evidence will be presented by the next court date. That's going to be January 16th, and that will be the preliminary exam. And we're going to also hear from the police chief today about this uh, encouraging decline in homicides. Yeah, I mean, the lowest number of homicides since Since 1966. I was going to say, since you and I... Long before we started covering this. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, 252 homicides uh, compared to 308 in 2022. He's going to have a press conference, uh, Chief James White, this yeah. afternoon at 1 o'clock. And he's going to join us tomorrow morning to talk more about this on JR Morning. Meantime, yeah, the Beatles were playing Olympia the last time. The number of homicides <laughs> yes. were this low. Uh, new... Uh, new video, new testimony, if you will, in a different case, and that's the prosecution of these NFL refs. People are all worked up about what happened in Dallas, obviously, because you feel like a, a win was stolen from the Detroit Lions. Well, instead of apologizing or saying we got it wrong, the NFL doubling down yesterday, sending a video memo to all 32 teams on how players should be reporting. So basically pushing blame on the Lions players. It you watch the video, and it circles Dan Skipper when he does report correctly, and then it circles him again in the ill-fated play. But he wasn't the one who reported. reported right. It does not even talk about how Taylor Decker went up to the referee and said, I'm reporting verbally and touched his numbers, which is what you're supposed to do. It's just all ridiculous, and people are all up in arms. Look at the billboards. Oh, 
yes. on all of our uh, Love the billboards. highways, and you'll see how worked yeah. up people still so are. So do you think there's going to be a change in ruling that there's going to be, that you're going to have to be more obvious in the way you report in the future, They'll which kind definitely, of destroys the whole purpose right. of, of deception in, They'll in this definitely case? discuss this in the offseason. Once again, another lion's rule Yeah, like Megatron. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. So, so <laughs> Yeah. I talked about it last night on television, and people are just upset. Devin is beside himself. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm right there with him. Yeah. Um, it's, it's so frustrating, and the idea that, you, you know, I, we, we remember back to Armando Galarraga, the perfect game that was yes. stolen from. Jim it, Joyce said, Jim Joyce, I made a mistake. Yeah. We are all human. Be, it yes. happens. That's the standard. That yeah. should be the standard. Well, uh, the referee and his team, Brad Allen, are just going to continue on, continue on. In prime time. Yeah, in prime time Saturday, <sighs> Steelers-Ravens. Yeah. So, yeah, your Steelers. Let's see if they goof that up. <laughs> yeah. Pre- we're preparing. <laughs> yeah. Put Kevlar around your psyche. <laughs> <laughs> 614 on uh, AM 760 WJR. Uh, big meeting coming up on Saturday of uh, the Republican State Committee where – uh, if they change the bylaws, and they're apparently intending to do that, with a two-thirds vote, they could remove Chairwoman Christina Caramo. We will hear from her next on JR Morning. GOP Chairwoman Christina Caramo faces basically a no-confidence vote that could oust her come this Saturday. And uh, she sat down with our Chris Wenwick on JR Afternoon to talk about this meeting and the finances and stability of the state GOP. What is your reaction to the calls for your ouster, specifically when it comes to the the what it appears to be a, a, a lack of ability to bring in big money and and, and the, the leadership that you're providing and the, the, the deterioration in that? What do you make of that? I would disagree that it's deterioration in leadership. The fact is that these eight district chairs, their letter was filled with dishonesty and fallacies and false information. So anytime individuals have to resort to dishonesty to make a claim, that claim, that puts into question their seriousness for wanting me to resign for serious and legitimate reasons. Um, the reality is, is that this party for decades has been losing ground that Democrats have been slowly creeping in. Um, unfortunately, he's talked to a lot of Michiganders and not just Americans in general who are who consider themselves to be Republicans who find a point of pride of not funding the Republican Party. Uh, you see at the national level in many states across America, the Republican parties aren't in the financial shape they need to be in. And why? Because that's a lack of trust in the party that began well before I became chair. So our process of developing trust and developing credibility in the eyes of the public, it is going to look different. That is why the majority of delegates elected me, because they didn't want the status quo. So, of course, people who want to maintain the status quo because they feel comfortable while we're losing elections, they're going to be against what we're doing, because what we're doing is we're pushing power down into the hands of the citizenry. And that's been our focus, because I am convinced that how we restore and fortify our middle class how we have better political representation means pushing down power into the hands of the citizenry by teaching people and organizing people on how to engage our government in a meaningful way other than just complaining on social media. Sure. So that through that process, we recruit new individuals who will fund the party, and it does, it does take time. You can't take a broken organization and suddenly restore trust while we're dealing with saboteurs. I mean, one of the people who's trying to – who's calling to remove me – has openly admitted they found common ground with Gretchen Whitmer or taking pictures with Gretchen Whitmer. So that kind of tells you the kind of people I'm dealing with. So um, we are we are moving ahead. We are course correcting. 
and we're going to ensure that Republicans win next year. All right. So you talked about status quo, and I think that's an interesting uh, way to put it, because the status quo, I think, in times like these is to raise a lot of money. Now, uh, as as far as I can tell or from what I see, I don't know that you guys are raising as much as as much as the Republican Party has here in the state of Michigan in years past. And you've told me that you, you want to take this more to the to the grassroots level, people on the ground, as opposed to wealthy donors that are pulling the strings. And that's fine. And if you have a thousand people that donate a dollar or a donor that gives you a thousand bucks, it's still a thousand bucks. But are you able to raise the amount of money necessary do you believe that is going to be impactful come november of 2024 yes i i will and not i will we will and here's why one of the things i have discovered is that many of the things that are required to be effective is not as expensive as we i was led to believe when i first ran i thought things were significantly more expensive i mean we were able to for example we were able to cut costs for many things 80 90 percent and still get the job done. Even for our upcoming March 2nd convention we'll have in Detroit, I mean, we'll be getting it done for 70% cheaper, if not more than in years past for convention costs. So we're able to get the job done. But to your point, we are not um, like anti-donor class. And I think that's kind of really kind of the sick culture we've developed within the Republican Party. Because in the Democrat Party, there's not this separation between donors and activists. They're one and the same. You know, the donors and activists are the same people. The question is, what does your activism look like and what does your donation look like? There's the question. But for some reason in the Republican Party, we've developed this sick culture where the people who are the activists on the ground, they don't contribute. And then the people who give large amounts of money, they're not active. I mean, it's really kind of bizarre. So what we're doing is, you know, repairing that relationship where there are lots of people who have means but haven't given money to the party for decades because they've lost trust. And it's about reestablishing that trust and getting the people who are in, on the ground more engaged in a meaningful way, that way they feel inclined to want to give. So, what Kirk, do I mean by I just want to say, Christina Caramo joins us. You talked about the trust. If there is a, if there is a, if there is a per- perception, at least from our perspective, that there is a growing number inside the Republican Party here in the state of Michigan, those that have a certain voice that want you gone, under what circumstances would you would you step away? You know, if I'm lawfully removed, then I will quietly step away, but that's not the case. I mean, it's a reason, I mean, again, one of the things you have to understand, many of these individuals weren't, they supported another candidate for chair to begin with. And as I said before, when people have to resort to dishonesty in order to make their case, that invalidates their entire case altogether. And where were these individuals complaining and clamoring for the years what we have been losing elections for three cycles in a row? They weren't saying anything. And many of them were involved in it. So I'll just leave that there. So the reality is, is that I pissed off a lot of people with a whole lot of money. And that is not my goal. But if that's what happens as a result of me operating in an ethical manner and fulfilling my campaign promises, so be it. Well, let me but ask you this. Do, do you, did you find that the people that opposed you initially got on board and now they're turning their tide again? Or were they always against you from the get go? Always against me from the beginning. As soon as I as soon as I became chair is when it all started. And it just grew and grew to a certain individuals exposing themselves more and more and more as to what they truly are. Um, but we are moving ahead because, you know, really quickly. A lot of the counties have experienced the exact same thing that I've experienced just on a grander scale when the vision of the new administration 
is a direct contrast to what it has been in years past. So we're just course correcting, moving ahead. And again, we have to ask ourselves, why is the average Republican voter for years lost confidence in the Republican Party? So she's right. Uh, there is a loss of confidence and, and full credit to her for coming on with Chris. Um, and I thought Chris asked a really good question. You know, if, if you've lost confidence, um, when do you step away? She is being, I think, terribly disingenuous when she says, well, these were people were all against me from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Are you telling me that eight congressional district chairs were against you from the beginning? Then how the hell did, did you, you get, get elected? elected? Yeah. So also her running mate is the one who is is very con- interested. Conveniently in ignores that. Yeah. 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 Um, so, no, there is these people were grassroots just like her. They were people that supported her in many cases. Yeah, the establishment is against her. She's right about that. And there is this ongoing schism between them and, and her factions. But the majority of these people that are lining up against her were former supporters. supporters. But they're saying and, and this was the um, this is the line from that that letter that stands out. You were chosen as chairwoman because the majority of the Republican delegates strongly respected your commitment to a new era of transparency, honesty, and meaningful involvement on the part of the state committee. In other words, not just top-down leadership. Then it goes on to say, regrettably, these policies no longer seem to be a priority in your administration, and the party's financial stability is quickly deteriorating. You're not being transparent about what's going on in the finances. If the party's in such great shape, then open the books. Right. Show the state committee. Go to this meeting that they're having on Saturday. State your case. And she says she will step down if she's lawfully removed. Will she determine if she's lawfully removed? Very good I mean, the committee is going to meet, and there's this threshold for removing her. Is that what she means? Well, it's three quarters. You need 75% for removal, but they're going to change the bylaws to make it apparently two-thirds, and you only need two-thirds support to change the bylaws. So it sounds like they're not quite to the 75% threshold, but they feel that they've got enough. Um, to, to to move on. And you know what? She will likely be. She's not going to be replaced by someone from the establishment. They're not going to reach out to Ron Weiser or Betsy DeVos or uh, the old guard of the, of the party. These people rejected that. Right. So it will be someone like Christina Caramo, but somebody that will open the books and say, hey, folks, we got a problem, and here's how we're going to solve it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you also, are you as curious as I am? Ooh, i got to get to a break here about why. Um, Donald Trump hasn't spoken up, supported her. I find his silence curious and loud in in a number of ways. We'll be back. Michigan, we got a problem. Uh, In spite of a small bump in our population, we are not uh, anywhere near growing as fast as we need to for our economic health and future. We also are not graduating enough talented people Uh, to satisfy the needs of our business community. All of this will be brought into clearer focus next week as the Detroit Policy Conference uh, gets undertaken at the Motor City Casino Hotel. Sandy Barua, president and CEO of the Detroit Regional Chamber, joining us live this morning. Sandy, good morning and Happy New Year. Good morning and Happy New Year to you all. So we've had the, I mean, since our our get-together up at Mackinac in, uh, in the spring, We've had the Whitmer Population Council come through with its recommendations. What will you be focusing on in that blueprint uh, in this uh, forthcoming conference? Well, what we wanted to do is we wanted to take the work of the governor's council, which I was proud to serve on, and I think we came up with some really strong 
uh, recommendations. I'm really proud of that work. Uh, but really kind of focus it on Southeast Michigan, you know, you know, Detroit and the surrounding area. So what does it mean for us? And what can we do, regardless what the state does, what can we do to grow the population of Southeast Michigan? So that's kind of how the vision of the conference uh, is, is laid out. And we have, you know, the same chairs uh, that chaired the Governor's uh, Population Council, Ambassador John Ricolta and Shirley Stancato, who serves as a governor at Wayne State University. They're going to be the chairs of our conference. Uh, Sandy, uh, will Mayor uh, Duggan have a, a part in this as well? Because, you know, when Mayor Duggan was first elected, he says, judge my administration what I did on on growing the population of the city of Detroit. Yeah, absolutely, Lloyd. Uh, the, the mayor is uh, is confirmed. We're we're always happy to have the mayor at both the Mackinac Policy Conference and the Detroit Policy Conference. I think he may have missed one Detroit Policy Conference over the years, and that's it. So we're really excited to have the mayor. We're also going to have, uh, you know, our three county executives, uh, Warren Evans and Dave Coulter and Mark Hackle. Uh, we've got uh, Kimberly Espy, who we all know is the new president for Wayne State uh, University, uh, and, you know, and several, several other people that, you know, you will all recognize, Nikolai Vitti from, you know, the Detroit Public Schools Community District, and Angelique Power from the Skillman Foundation, and uh, Portia Roberson, who uh, heads Focus Hope. Uh, so we've got a great lineup of people, and I just kind of scratched the surface of who's going to be part of this. Uh, Sandy, you mentioned it's a who's who for the speakers, for the panel topics, et cetera. Who are the people coming to this conference and how do they go out into the world, into the community and, and help population growth? Yeah, so the Detroit Policy Conference, Jamie, is certainly our most kind of diverse uh, population mix. I mean, certainly we have, uh, you know, our core audience, which are chamber members, which are all business owners or business runners. Uh, you know, we're obviously a business organization, so that's our key audience. But it also attracts a lot of community leaders. So people, you know, who, you know, you know, work, you know, work out in the, in the community, uh, work for nonprofits, uh, work for educational institutions, uh, you know, work for service organizations. So it is a real mix. Uh, and what we, the way we built the Detroit Policy Conference, and that we're now in our either 10th or 11th year, I lose track, uh, is kind of a Mackinac Policy Conference, but just for the Detroit region. Uh, so it's much more accessible. The uh, agenda is much more targeted uh, at Southeast Michigan. Um, and, of course, you know, you don't have to travel. You don't have to spend the night. Uh, it's, it's a lot more affordable. When you look at the recommendations, Sandy, and your participation in this, especially as it relates to K through 12 education, which I, I guess you're not even calling it K through 12 anymore. I think it's pre-K through 13, right? You want to expand both pre-K and, and post-secondary uh, options. But as you look at that, what's the one thing that we absolutely need to get behind and, and get bipartisan support to, to make that first leap to, to being more effective uh, with our education system and, and initiating the kind of turnarounds that we've seen successfully done in places like Tennessee? Yeah. So, listen, I, 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 I want to be the first to say that, you know, uh, if you ask you know, uh, a dozen people, you might get 10 different responses as to what the answer to that question is. But for me and for the Detroit Regional Chamber, it's about student performance. The most important thing we need to do is to raise the standards of what our educational system uh, uh, is expected to do. 
we look across Michigan, and you know, even if you live in one of these affluent areas, like say a Gross Point or a Bloomfield or East Grand Rapids or you know, whatever it is, our highest performing school districts don't perform as well as high performing school districts in other parts of the country. So when we say that you know, Michigan's educational um, levels are less than average, this isn't just a, you know, a big city problem, you know, a Flint problem, a Pontiac problem. This is you know, a, a problem across the state, including our affluent districts. So you just can't throw money at, at, at the schools, uh, Sandy. You're saying basically, you know, if this happening in these affluent areas, it's not just about money. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, some of our, you know, large school districts, you know, there's actually they spend a lot of money yeah. uh, on, on a per, per student basis, but we're still not getting uh, getting the results. You know, oh, when I am, um, I, I also serve on the Launch Michigan uh, board, and that has been, you know, going now for about the last five years, really examining uh, and kind of slowly chipping away at the policy solutions for, you know, how do we fix kind of our K through 12 system. And one of the things that I've learned through that is that, you know, it's not the people in the process. It is the process itself. The process that, you know, we have in Michigan to educate a child is just broken, to, to, to be honest. You know, we don't have the right support systems in place. We don't have the right standards in place. Uh, you know, teachers obviously need to be, you know, paid better and, you know, provide more support in, in the goal of supporting uh, supporting our students in the, in the classroom. So, you know, I would say that, you know, at the end of the day, a high school graduation needs to mean something. It just can't mean that you put in your time. It needs to mean that you have reached uh, sufficient skills uh, that are quantifiable, that employers can know that, okay, this person graduated from a high school in Michigan. I know him or her can do X, Y, and Z. And, and there's part of this also in that is bringing young professionals to this area and there are perspectives you're going to give on bringing these people here and what they want. Yeah, exactly right, Jamie. I mean, the, uh, you know, and I'm, I, I'm probably a little bit more uh, out front on this than maybe some others, but it's really about a, attracting and retaining young educated professionals. I mean, when you look across, you know, not just the country, but the world in terms of the areas that are growing economically and really attracting jobs, you know, they are a magnet for young, educated professionals. So we have to do a better job of that. I mean, as Guy said in the lead-in, you know, Michigan's population is growing, but it's growing at such a lower rate than, frankly, the rest of the country, our neighboring states, certainly our economically uh, peer states are, um, that we're, we're, just, we're just losing ground literally every day. And I think young educated professionals are a big key to that. I want to have my glass half full on this, Sandy, but when I look at prior attempts to set standards and then uh, put accountability for those standards and active penalties in place, that's all been watered down in the last 12 months by the uh, Democrat le legislature that was responding to some legitimate concerns on the part of some educators, but also stripping out a lot of the accountability. So where do we go from there if we're watering down our standards? Well, the nice thing about uh, both the governor's council and the Launch Michigan effort is that they 
they both included, you know, business leaders and education leaders, as well as, you know, a broad array of, of people from all sorts. So I think that the combination, the, kind of like the one-two punch of what Launch Michigan has done over the last few years, plus the alignment that the council came up with, alignment with the Launch Michigan recommendations, I think there's some, uh, I think there's some momentum there now that there wasn't there before. And, you know, accountability needs, needs to be there absolutely. Otherwise, you know, frankly, it, it's, it's not going to work. And, you know, from my view, I'm not wedded to any particular accountability system. It just needs to be an accountable, right. accountability system that works. Okay. Uh, you know, in, with a legislature evenly, evenly divided in the House, um, maybe uh, we've got some potential there for uh, actual consensus building because without a majority, you're not going to have any one of those silos in, in a position to, uh, to, to call the shots. Um, Sandy, we uh, look forward to Thursday. And uh, for those that want to sign up for the Detroit Policy Conference, how do they do that? Uh, go to our website, DetroitChamber.com backslash DPC. Uh, it is, if you're a chamber member, it's $215. If you're not quite yet a chamber member, uh, we're happy to take your check for $265. All right. Very good. And again, that's next Thursday at the Motor City Casino, correct? Uh, the, the 11th of January. All right. Very good. Sandy, thanks so much. You bet. Take care. Speaking of accountability, uh, is that what we saw at Harvard University yesterday as the president, Claudine Gay, resigned um, but didn't exactly accept responsibility for her own words in the process. Was race a part of it? A lot of folks are saying that it was. We'll break it down for you next on JR Morning at 649. So breaking news yesterday from the Harvard president, the first African-American uh, president of Harvard, uh, stating in a statement after a meeting with uh, the Harvard Corporation, it has become clear that it is in the best interest of Harvard for me to resign so that our community can navigate this moment of extraordinary challenge with a focus on the institution rather than any individual. Um, a number from of those from the left had said that this is purely about um, partisan uh, activity against DEI, that this is an attack against her because she is black, um, I don't know. Let me, I, I've got some thoughts on it, but I wanted to just let you guys weigh in on that first. Certainly, Elise Stefanik, uh, did, did, did the representative from New York that did the grilling the day that kind of unearthed yeah. all of this, um, is taking a victory lap on this. Here's what she said when asked, you know, was this motivated about race? We have seen a failure of leadership from Claudine Gay, a failure of moral leadership, but also a failure of academic integrity, which is a cornerstone of any higher education institution. So I called for her resignation, as I did for all three, because of their abject failure in that congressional testimony and their failure to protect Jewish students. So basically saying it's about performance. Not about the color of her skin. Um, yet we know that there's always kind of this undertone when you're talking about a black leader. Yeah, Derek Johnson, uh, who is the president of the uh, NAACP, said President Claudine Gay is a distinguished scholar and professor with decades of service in higher education. The recent attacks on her leadership are nothing more than political theatrics advancing a white supremacist agenda. But people got on X and, and kind of got back at him. Uh, one writer said this is not only a lie, but it's incredibly demeaning to racial minorities to suggest that upholding basic standards of academic integrity is some sort of white supremacist, supremacist plot. 
And that was part of her statement yesterday. And, and she's giving some feed, feeding some of this. Amidst all of this, she says, it has been distressing to have doubt cast on my commitments to confronting hate and to upholding scholarly rigor. Well, I would say on the former, why don't you talk to Jewish students at Harvard who saw your parsing and your tone-deaf response to Congresswoman Stefanik's questioning who felt less safe on their campus because of what she said. And then in terms of academic rigor, I just I, I, I go to the Washington Post, not exactly, uh, you know, the Washington Free Beacon here. Right. Ruth Marcus writes, quote, she plagiarized her acknowledgments in her the acknowledgments in her dissertation at the very end. She says, I take no joy in saying this, but she must resign. Her track record is unbefitting the president of the country's premier university. Remaining on the job would send a bad signal to students about the gravity of her conduct. That's from the Washington Post. And an African-American columnist in The New York Times said much the same thing. I think it's a little muddy because of what happened in the congressional hearings. That was all about her response to Hamas and how Jewish students feel on her campus. Then there's also this issue of plagiarism. So it's like, what is it that people wanted her to resign for? I think it's a little muddy. What is it? And then there's this quote from someone saying, well, this shows that the wokeism at schools, it's time to change leadership. It's just all very muddy. I think you need a message of why you wanted this woman out. But I do think if there's a political agenda here, it's more about anti-woke and trying to stem this yeah. tide of, of, of progressivism, which in this case manifested itself in something that many Jewish leaders saw as, as uh, condoning anti-Semitism. Right. And so you're right. It it is muddy. I got to tell you, in looking at the number of op-ed pieces written by those from the left Mm -hmm. calling for her to resign, um, it's clear to me this ended up being about her academic integrity. And you can't have different standards for students and the president of the university. If her citations weren't the way they should have been, any student would have gotten in trouble for that. Yeah. And, And kids are watching. Young people are watching. And listen, I'm all about black excellence. And it's, you know, as a journalist, you know, you start talking about plagiarism. That's another thing. And and one writer uh, on X said you're implying that black people can't be expected not to plagiarize or demonstrate moral clarity. This is the soft bigotry of low expectations. I and see that. That's you what know, the New York Times So to guys, Derek Johnson, yeah, I would say if there is a racial component here, Look at what happened to the the president of UPenn. She was gone in four days. Just like that. This the, the reluctance of Harvard to address this was about the fact that she was the first black president, yeah. and the reluctance to take down a black leader. And, and the, the, the question is then, how did she get the position in the first place? If there were these grave questions about her academic rigor, did you put DEI ahead of the very basic uh, integrity, academic integrity that should have been questioned from jump. Mm-hmm. And and John McWhorter um, said, look, Harvard has a clear policy on plagiarism mm-hmm. that threatens undergraduates with punishment up to the university's equivalent of expulsion for just a single instance of it. That policy may not apply to the president, but the recent growing revelations about past instances by Dr. Gay make it untenable for her to remain in office again. This is an African-American columnist in the New York Times. And uh, Ingrid Jacques, who is a friend of ours, former Detroit News editorial writer, now writing in the, in the USA Today, uh, she, 
she said, look, um, these folks are focusing slowly, solely on her identity, mm-hmm. not on her performance and her actions. And that's a problem. Yeah. I, I, it's just so difficult because you don't want just public pressure to make your decisions for you. And everyone is against, I think, well, not everyone, but a lot of people are against um, cancel culture. And we are humans and you make mistakes, but you have to decide if, if the optics are so bad that she can't lead the university. Well, and I would argue that, that there's some disingenuousness on the part of Elise Stefanik, who is more than happy to engage yes. in cancel culture, at the same time railing against it on college campuses when it's directed at conservative it's, speakers. It's, it's you right. can't have it both ways. Both ways. Right. right. And and so um, something I admire about Nolan Finley. I mean, he he always pulls in the reins uh, and 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 keeps himself from jumping in on the cancel <laughs> culture bandwagon. It's easy to do, right? Because we get into this tit for tat um, feud uh, with those on the other sides, and somehow think it's a gain when our cancel culture prevails. Mm-hmm. No, we all lose, and and. That's really that, and that's the other part of this thing with Christina Karama and the GOP. When your mess uh, outweighs the message that you're trying to convey, then you've got a real problem, and that's what's happened here. We'll be back. It is Wednesday. I know it feels like a Tuesday, but it is Wednesday, December 3rd, 2024. Trying to get used to that. And we welcome you in on this uh, Wednesday as we get you over the hump. Uh, good exploration on the uh, on the Harvard uh, president resigning. And if you missed it uh, before the uh, top of the hour, uh, you can find that always at thegreatvoice.com. Uh there's uh, some, uh, I mean, if if you wanted to buy stock, uh, you should have bought it in StubHub ticket prices because, oh. uh, man, alive. I mean, it's do you, do you, do you uh, mortgage the house for your Lions tickets or for U of M? Uh, well, it, it depends what your priorities are, I guess. Yeah. I You know, first of all, a lot of people watch Michigan, Alabama. 27.2 million viewers, according to ESPN, the largest college football audience since 28.4 watch Alabama, Georgia in 2018. So a lot of people care. So now you go on to the next game, which is national championship against Washington, and flights are not cheap. Uh, just yesterday, seats were more than twenty three hundred dollars for two tickets from Detroit to Houston. How wow. about um, uh, how about that's not flights, that's tickets actually. Um, if you want to sit on the fifty yard line, eighteen thousand five hundred. Yeah, that's twenty thousand between you and me. And flights are about a thousand right now, yeah. and Delta is adding flights, so It'll I mix a... it up a little. But it's thousands of dollars to get yourself to Houston and watch Michigan Wolverines. You better be able to call a play. For that much money, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there better like be that. some swag. Uh, something, yeah. Oh, my. I mean, I just the the numbers. It means like the regular fan is not going to go to that game. 
No, it does, t- which is really sad. Now, there is, if you're an alum and you've given X amount to the university, there are there's a point system, I believe, where you can buy some tickets through the university and through the Alumni Association, but you have to have a certain level of points. Right. Through the Alumni Associations, they have those packages and it, you know. But not everybody is eligible. It's, right. it's, it's kind of like the frequent flyer miles where, you, you you know, you never have quite enough to get you to Hawaii. You can, <laughs> you, you, you can you get to Des Moines. To, yeah. <laughs> you can go to, like, College Station, Texas. <laughs> exactly. And then drive. Yeah. yeah. Um, man, the more we learn about this family that was in this tragic explosion, uh, I, I just when I heard about the young man attending Michigan Tech, wanting yeah. to be an archaeologist, just uh, breaks your heart. And we st- still don't really know. The frightening part is we really don't know what it was that happened. No, we don't. The four people killed and two injured in the house explosion in Whitmore Lake on Saturday, now being publicly identified. Uh, the homeowner, 72-year-old Richard Pruden, was severely injured, but he survived. His daughter, 51-year-old Hope Bragg, was killed along with Hope's husband, 53-year-old Don. And their children, 22-year-old Kenneth and 19-year-old Elizabeth, their 16-year-old son, Stephen, survived. The Bragg family was visiting from Arkansas. Now, as far as the cause, uh, guys, you said police say they have an undetermined fuel air explosion that caused uh, the blast and don't suspect any foul play at this time. But police say there more testing needs to be done to find out what the fuel sources were to the residents, whether it was propane or natural gas or some other type of um, um Gas and investigators say right now they're unable to determine exactly where in the house the explosion occurred. And it's going to be a vigil this coming um, Saturday, Saturday at 3 o'clock at Whitmore Lake High School. And um, Marie Osborne is going to be talking more about this coming up at 849. When you look at the debris field, oh my that, that was a more powerful explosion than you would see from a normal gas leak situation yes. or those that you, you and I have covered in the yes. past. That's it just, I mean, it was it's so... just obliterated. Nothing but a basement left. Yes. And and when you look at it, you go, well, gosh, if it was a gas leak, how did it go undetected? Mm. And Does it seem like there are more home explosions? It sure it does. Has Recently? Been. Yes, it has What been. is going on? I, you know, it's one of those things, too, like because of the media you know, environment we're in, is it like shark attacks? Are we just hearing about right. more of them and it's the same as normal? Or is there a problem here there was that one in pittsburgh i know mm-hmm. just because i'm from there right. and i watch those reports there's this one that we're talking about now and i believe i just heard of about another one somewhere and we had one in detroit not yeah. long ago that's right that's um, it that that also set the house on fire, fire next, next door, door. yeah but again that was a, i mean it didn't have the debris field that would have taken out this explosion would have taken out the two houses on either side when you look at uh what happened there so uh just sad and uh, and and disturbing. Uh, on the political front, uh, USA Today Suffolk University poll. Perhaps you've heard about this. Uh, President Biden's coalition of Black, Hispanics, and the young that got him elected is shrinking by the day. Um, right now, he trails Donald Trump in a nationwide head-to-head poll, thirty-nine thirty-seven, with seventeen percent now supporting an unnamed third-party candidate. And that's not even including those that if there was a viable one they could get behind that might defect from either one of the, you know, potential nominees. But the numbers for African-Americans, 87 percent of black voters helped Joe Biden carry in 2020. That has dropped by 24 percentage points to 63 percent. When you look at Hispanics, 
Um, he had 65% support among Hispanics, uh, swamping Trump 2-1 to one in that demographic in 2020. That's now fallen by 26 points to 39%. Carl Rove was on Fox yesterday, and he says, if you look at the margins of victory in Arizona and Georgia, just a 2 percentage point drop or less in those states could cost Biden the battleground states that got him elected. Georgia. Joe Biden won it by 11,799 votes. 29% of the electorate is black. If there is a 0.9 tenths of a percent, less than 1% decline in support among blacks in Georgia, Joe Biden loses Georgia. Arizona, 19% of the electorate is Hispanic. Biden won it by 10,900, excuse me, 417 votes. A 2.7% decline. Now remember, right today it's a 20% decline, a 2.7% decline, and he loses Arizona. And among younger voters, uh, Trump now leads 37-33. What's interesting here is those that are defecting, the blacks and Hispanics that are leaving, are not going to Donald Trump. That that was my question. I just wanted to know where they were going. They're going to the third parties. That these which these be, unnamed third parties. Well, party. Bobby Kennedy, I think, had something like ten uh, percent. Was that the number? Uh, looking back, um, I mean, he's 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 the the only one. Uh, he, Trump has twelve percent, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I've lost the lost the thread there. The no labels. People say it's fine. We're going to name someone. It won't be too late. But it seems like the time is now to name someone. to name somebody. Yeah. yeah, and I don't know if they're hoping that at some point Nikki Haley says after the Iowa caucuses or at least after New Hampshire, done. But then the problem is, how do you get her on the ballot uh, in, in other states as a no-labels person if she was already on there as a Republican? Um, and so it may have to be somebody else. But uh, just a, an incredible uh, collapse uh, amongst that. By the way, uh, we were we still haven't seen the Jeffrey Epstein list. No. Where is it? Yeah, I thought it was it's, coming it's, yesterday. It's waiting to be unveiled, uh, but it... In the meantime, Aaron Rodgers uh, on the Pat McAfee show yesterday pointed a finger at Jimmy Kimmel. There's a lot of people, including Jimmy Kimmel, who are really hoping that list doesn't come out. Uh, well, Kimmel is basically saying, dear blank hole. He wasn't rec- joking either. No. <laughs> for the record, I've not met, flown with, visited, or had any contact with Epstein, nor will you find my name on that list. Uh, other than uh, the clearly phony nonsense that soft-brained wackos like yourself <laughs> can't seem to distinguish from reality. Is we can talk about it further in court if you want to persist. Uh, he's, he's. I think that's incredibly having... dangerous of Aaron Rodgers to just put out Throw a name out like that. Yeah, and it's not true. So appropriate response for Jimmy Kimmel. There's this uh, thing called defamation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, we're learning about it on a lot of fronts. Uh, time for the WJR Business Beat. Let's bring in Jeff Sloan to take a look at the entrepreneurial tech and startup community here on WJR. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Guy. It's that time of year. Many businesses looking forward to 2024 and cooking up their strategic plans, including their marketing plans, of course. And when businesses think of their alignment to hot demographic categories they need to be paying attention to, no doubt many may turn their focus to Gen Z and for good reason. But a less obvious demographic, but with lots of spending power, is one that must be considered as well. This demographic, it's the over 50s. An amalgamation of three generations, Gen X, Baby Boomers, and the Silent Generation, as they're known. And today, they are digital savvy, are active on social media, consume content on desktop and mobile, and even follow influencers that target them. And they're spending, spending on everything from automotive to technology to household appliances. 
They make up a whopping 35% of the population and 53% of all consumer spend. The AARP reports that over 50s are spending $8.3 trillion a year, a sum expected to increase to $13 trillion by 2030. And that spending power needs to be embraced with products and services as well as advertising that caters specifically to them. So if you're working on your 2024 marketing plan, don't forget to target and engage the over 50s. Just remember, consumers in this demographic are savvy, brand loyal, perhaps even a bit set in their ways, and tend to be smarter shoppers in general. So be prepared to engage them accordingly. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com, and that's today's business beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR. Man, a year ago at this time, we were in a sea of pessimism. Folks were angry about gas prices, understandably. The consumer confidence was soft. Um, there was just uh, rampant predictions of a looming recession coming in Q4 of 2023, and everybody was bracing for a downturn. Instead, as we ended 2023, the S&P 500 rose 24.2% for the year. The NASDAQ up 43.4%. The Russell 2000 rose 15.1%. It was a very nice surprise. So how should we change? If we were in uh, recession mode, if we were in a defensive posture with our stocks and our portfolios, what should we do for 2024? Who better to ask than Chris Alberta, president of Principium Tactical Wealth Management. So tactics is exactly what we need. Chris, good morning. Hey, guys. How's it going? I'm great. So how surprised were you amidst the gloom and doom a year ago that this market just defied a gravity and expectations? Well, so I think being surprised is uh, is a, become a norm lately. I mean, every time money managers think it's going one way, it seems to go the other. You know, the irony of that, of course, is that we have more intelligence, more data, more algorithmic stuff that's supposed to help everyone know what's happening. And even in the age where you have every tool available, it seems to oftentimes do the opposite. So we were surprised. I think everyone was a bit surprised that it went up as much as it did. But I think that there's some reading between the lines that we would do well to remember. One of those, of course, is that the S&P 500 is the barometer for the U.S. stock market, right? It is the equity benchmark. But only about six or seven of the S&P 500 are really responsible for most of that growth, two-thirds of it. I'm sure you've seen a lot of these statistics, too. And if you didn't really own those six, seven, eight stocks, think of the Apple, the Alphabet, Amazon, NVIDIA. The Magnificent Seven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Mag Seven, right? I mean, look, NVIDIA was up 239% on its own. So you know when a when a client comes in with a portfolio and they say, look, I, my frustration is that I've been watching the news for the last few years and you know I see this gigantic year and I see the the ticker running on the bottom of the news, but I'm not doing nearly as well as, as the market's doing. Yeah, that's the norm. I mean, they don't have these handful of stocks that have gone off like a rocket. And Chris, how much is a factor of the Fed uh, intending to lower interest rates next year or this year? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they kind of had to do what they did, right, to stem the inflation tide a little bit. And now with the announcement that they're going to start ticking back down, it, essentially that's less competition for the equity market. So that should free things up. 
right? And, and you guys, I think, are in the same boat as me. You know, it's a touch older, perhaps, but we all have the same conversations with one another where we look out the window and look at the, the geopolitics and the wars going on. Yeah. And inflation's still around, and you say, geez, if there's a storm. Every direction I look out the window, there's a storm brewing. How come it's nice and sunny right this second? You know, so it defies common sense. But keep in mind, too, that if we go back two years, which, you know, I don't want to cherry pick time frames. The S&P was basically down 18.1% during 22. So if about $100,000 in the S&P 500 on January 1st of 2022 and then held it, didn't do a darn thing, by the end of 2023, you're up 2900 bucks. So much of that incredible rally, could it be just a rebound from a really awful 2022? Right. Sure. And, you know, Guy, you and I talk a lot about the retirement side of the world since that's where I specialize. The old school kind of 60-40 approach, 60% in stock, 40% in bonds or bond equivalents, that blend is actually down around $7,000 on that same $100,000 investment in the same time frame. Down 17% in 22 up 14% in 23. So is it really as good as the numbers make it look? I would say no. Wow. It's a nice reality check, Chris. Yeah. Thank you. Well, so then, Chris, what's the investing lesson if things aren't what they seem? Well, there's a lot of lessons to be, to be learned, but I think it depends on very much, you know, what bracket of life you're in, right? So for you and I, Jamie, if we're in our 30s and 40s, and we're constantly putting new money in the market in our 401k every time we get paid, we're, you know, what's often called dollar cost averaging. Every time we buy in, we're buying in at a different level. And that allows us in certain cycles to be buying things on sale. And that's a great thing. And to, to a large degree, you can say, look, it's going to go up. It's going to go down over time. It should be just fine. And that's true. I think for the, the more retiree-focused investor, largely what we see every day they have to keep in mind that at some point they'll retire, right, guy, and they'll be essentially unemployed. They're not making any new money. So one of the best things that could happen for the retirement investor is that they're insulated enough by really good asset allocation that the next time the market really does go into a real tailspin, like a 2008 type, which it probably will at some point. I'm not a prognosticator of you know, the financial apocalypse like so many on the news are. But it'll happen eventually. And when it does, everything then is on sale again. The, the key is to not, you know, do so well. You know, once everything's really in the momentum mode, and you look at these stats, it's for every year, typically, that it's up by 20%, the next year is up another 10. Like momentum begets momentum. Right. And that gets everybody on the bandwagon. We kind of have a reverse effect here that we might have with mortgages, where you want to lock in at a lower rate. If you are a risk-averse uh, investor and you are closer to retirement than, you know, quite close to retirement, is this the time to say, I got to load up on these bonds now because uh, we've seen the trend line with the Fed and these those interest rates could be falling. We've already seen some of those yields uh, scaled back. So what should my strategy be if I'm, I'm a risk-averse individual who's really close to retirement? Should I load up? Yeah, I think that, that, that again, is one of the ironies of this particular marketplace. 
if you're in a retiree or pre-retiree position, one alternative that you have when you look towards fixed rates, whether it's fixed treasuries, CDs, fixed annuity, whatever it might be, that are kind of bond, bond you know, aggregate replicants, is you look at all these four, five, six, seven percent guaranteed rates and say, well, why wouldn't I do that? Four or five years ago, people would have been chomping at the bit to get five or six percent guarantee. Now that five or six percent guarantee looks kind of lousy because it's being stacked directly next to a market that purportedly is up 20 plus percent. So that's where you really have to decide what is going to be my paycheck money forever and ever and ever. Well, what can I live off of to pay the bills, supplement my social security if it's still around down the line versus what's my playcheck money? What is the opportunity bucket? You know, I, I tell people all the time as a preacher's kid, using my analogies, you, you can't ever stop swinging the bat because the markets are going to give you a fastball over the plate sometimes. And if you're not swinging, you'll never hit a home run. Right. But that doesn't mean when we're getting wild pitches and something's very unpredictable, it's not okay to just take a walk. You know, hit a single, maybe hit a double here and there. I think the, a, the good portfolio has a blend of all those different hitters, from the home run hitter to the single base guy. Mm-hmm. Right. I think you explain things great. Which is why we have you on in for Paul. Is it this week or next? Uh, this week. I'm, in, I'm on for Paul this week. Yeah, I did uh, the, the week before Christmas and we've gone. I'm doing this week and then it's time to really get back to work. This is the slowest time for us because typically so many people are either heading south, you know, if they're snowbird sure. types or they're just taking a break. Yeah. But once we get towards February 1, you know, it's mayhem in the office getting ready for tax season and so on and so forth. So yeah. we're having fun with it. Just uh, we look forward to that, of course, noon to two here on AM 760 WJR on the Focus program. Uh, just one data point before we leave. Uh, there are 29 percent of voters now saying that the economy is in recovery. That's a jump of eight percentage points. We haven't seen it yet in the consumer confidence numbers. Do you think that will grow as we get closer to the election? We should point out the, to the frustration of the White House, the Biden administration is not getting credit. But do you expect consumer confidence to improve just very quickly? Uh, I don't. I, I really don't. And I could look, there's always a chance that we're wrong on those kind of things. But the, people make far too much out of the correlation between election politics and the markets themselves. They're not nearly as correlated as uh-huh. you would think. So I, I think that it will probably stay down despite the fact that it, nothing really will change. It'll right. be the normal anxiety of who's going to be in charge and what are they going to do. All right. Chris Alberta, we'll see you at noon. All right, guys. Talk to you soon. We got a little bit of drizzle out there that could cause some problems on the roads because uh, the temperatures are bumping around freezing. I'm also looking live at Boyne Mountain where the snow cannons are going full bore and the bare spots that I saw Sunday when I came home are no longer bare. Well, that's good for their business. They got nothing in the way of new precip, but they're making snow by the ton. And they got four out of 12 uh, runs open right now and they're working hard to get others open. So. For those of you that were that maybe were denied an opportunity between holidays to have a good run, uh, hopefully that will. Uh, there's there's some more snow up there that uh, you could get out there and have some fun. And by the way, Mount Brighton, uh, they haven't posted yet when they're going to reopen, but they've been making a, a ton of snow as well. Saw some nice pictures yesterday on Local Four right before your sportscast. <laughs> yes, uh, that, uh, that that indicated that we're getting better. But do be careful on the roads because we've got just enough moisture out there to be a. Uh, a pain in the bumper. Um, meantime, a question for you under, in, in, in other years, uh, we would be prepping right now for the North American International Auto Show. Yep. Um, we would have had CES this week and then the auto show next week. 
Um, Carol Kane uh, had a sit down with uh, a, a bunch of uh, local officials and CEOs. There now apparently is a growing consensus, she claims, uh, that to, to move it back to January, that September just isn't working, that you don't have the enthusiasm, you have too many um, competing interests for families, whether it's uh, rocket football or whatever, peewee football, mm-hmm. whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. There's just not as many opportunities for families to get down to um, Huntington Center and, and see the show. Um, I got to tell you, I really like the show in September. So do I. Yeah, same. Um, we are not in, but I, I understand about, they're, they're kind of saying, well, it's back to the future. This is no longer the media show that it was. It is a consumer show. First quarter is when the dealers need help. First quarter is when people are maybe thinking about that and they have the time to go down. So what do you think? I do agree this is sort of a downtime. After all the Christmas decorations come down, the kids are not in, well, the winter sports are happening, but they're not going to football or whatever. They, it, I do think the regular everyman might have more time right now. Well, if you want a guaranteed snowstorm. You know, bring it back in. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yes, Mount Brighton will be open, yeah, and will be. so will the North American yes. International Auto Show. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, this, it's, it really provokes some questions. I have obviously fond, fond memories of, uh, of, of sliding my way oh, down to Kobo in the, in the, you know, wee hours of the morning to get started. Charity with, preview. You know, live with the morning show going from uh, morning, noon, and night for three days. Um, it's, it's, it wouldn't be the same now because we don't have the same media exposure. But I do think that you might have a more captive audience. When uh, Carol Kane asked uh, Rod Alberts about this, he said there are a lot of ongoing discussions. Um, he uh, This was on Michigan Matters. He says uh, there are conversations being held about the show, and that's all he would say about that. So he's keeping his cards close to the best. I, I've got to know that after... You know, attendance didn't exactly, uh, uh, you know, hit Blow expectations. Your doors off. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're looking at this a little bit differently. But did COVID play? Did the pandemic play part? Play a part in this as well? Because when they made the changes, and, and then you know the pandemic hit, and it was it was it was different. You know, during that time, because You're saying people, have we have we had enough time to establish the new? Yeah, tradition? that's my thing. You know, and now if we if it goes back to January after we had time to establish it, and it's not working. Fine, but I think the pandemic played a part in that, and we just really didn't have, we haven't given it enough time. That's well, also, auto shows in general are changing, as you said earlier. If not it's dying not what, out altogether. Right. Yeah. I mean, the so fact that we still have an auto show is a win. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. Um, so it's something to consider, and I, I, it'll be interesting to see uh, once they put their heads together what they determine it will be best uh, for downtown Detroit, for the attendance of the show. But also now, this is more of a consumer show, more of a dealer show. We're back to what it was intended to be back in the early 20s, which was something to jumpstart slow sales in Q1. And we'll see if that if that uh, comes about. Meantime, George Santos is uh, threatening guy. to pull a Jeffrey Epstein on the, on the U.S. House of Representatives. <laughs> well, first of all, you know he was on Cameo, so you could have spent money f- to get a message from him. Well, the latest is on Twitter, he's trying to sell subscriptions, and he said... Basically, he's going to be spilling all kinds of tea, as they say, telling all the secrets of Congress, the media, and some celebrities. So for $7 a month, you could get some information from this guy. Now, would you believe a word of it? No. That's up to you. Well, he's saying that this is just a sex-crazed organization and that, you know, of all the things that he's been accused of doing, that this is, uh, you know, just pales in comparison to what these other folks are doing.
Uh, yeah, and in case you wonder, his cameo video, $75. Boy, he is. A, really? Yeah. He is a hustler. He, he, he is. Uh, you know, Yale University reached out and, um, and did a whole thing about uh, the top quotes of 2023. And I got to say, um, the one that stuck out to me was when he was talking about, told all those New York voters that he was Jewish. <laughs> right. And then we found out he was Catholic. And then he said, well, I didn't say that I was Jewish. I said I was Jew-ish. <laughs> oh, my oh. goodness. That is on, such man. a cop yes. You know, so that was it really, that was one of the biggest uh, quotes that came out of uh, of 2023. Uh, some, uh, some other quotes out there. Uh <laughs> Margot Robbie and Barbie saying, do you guys ever think about dying? <laughs> I have not seen Barbie. I want to, though. Uh, there, was some, there were some classics out there. Um, yeah. But George Santos saying. But if you want some George Santos content, you know where to go now. We, wow. we, we know where Wouldn't to believe go. believe any of it. And uh, there is, I guess, a new study saying that if you want to be healthy in any form or fashion and want to make yourself improve your bout against cancer, put down the cocktail. Yeah, this came out, I believe, yesterday in a study that no alcohol is safe. No safe amount of alcohol, which is really just a buzzkill. But if you're doing dry January, that's helpful. But they really say you should make lifestyle changes altogether, well, not I, just do it in January. I, I am doing dry January. And okay. I'm three good. days in, and so far, so good. So far, so good. Well, according to the study, giving up alcoholic drinks or reducing the amount that's consumed could reduce the risk of getting oral or esophageal cancer. And this is from the New England Journal of Medicine. What about mental health and the stress reduction that comes with maybe just a little... I, I realize this is self-medicating and I'm going to get all kinds of texts and calls. <laughs> you know but the, the ritual of relaxation that comes with having a cocktail in the evening. Uh, is there no and benefit? The Everything in moderation. Social, the social part of it on the weekends, yeah. too. I'm clinging to the morally safer piece on 60 Minutes from the 80s that says, you know, <laughs> that the French had it right that a glass of red wine will, which has been totally debunked. Yeah, well, yeah. there's Every, a study all the time. Everything right? in moderation. It's a, this says stopping alcohol consumption for a period of five to nine years was shown to reduce oral cancer risk by 34 percent. Okay. Okay. That's considerable. I mean, that's yeah. um, okay. Is there a, maybe a better delivery system? So, you know, can I just do with it, go with the IV drip so that my esophagus <laughs> isn't being irritated? Uh, just asking for a friend. For a friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When we come back, going to be talking about the NFL memo. Yeah, they released a video showing the proper way that a player should report if they're reporting as eligible, as Taylor Decker did. You're going to get all riled up again. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah. Well, Steve, we're the poster child. Stepping in with the latest on that as we move forward on your Wednesday morning here on News Talk 760 WJR. Steve, next. You know, the NFL, they're so committed to quality officiating that they sent out a video uh, in the aftermath of the somewhat controversial, just a little controversial. Yeah. Between the Lions and the Cowboys after that uh, two point conversion uh-huh. attempt that then was ruled to be. Illegal touching, which sounds so much nastier than it does. Yeah. Like, do I need a lawyer? An eligibility problem, oh. exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was Jeffrey Epstein uh, doing <laughs> officiating that game? 
what is behind the video? What does it say about the NFL's approach to what appeared to most reasonable minds a mistake? Who better to ask than WGR, WJR sports analyst Steve Courtney joining us live for the first time in 2024. Hey, Steve. Hey, Happy New Year, Guy, Lloyd, Jamie. Happy New Year, everybody. This conversation brought to you by the Performance Remodeling Sweepstakes. Performance Remodeling, a preferred partner of the Inside Outside Guys, kicked off another $100,000 window of opportunity sweepstakes. Request your windows, roofing, and siding quote today. Log into windowsroofingsiding.com to enter Performance Remodeling Sweepstakes. We know this. In business, anytime there's adversity, stand by for memos. The National Football League, certainly not the exception. Yes, Guy, after the controversial two-point conversion Saturday night in Dallas involving referee Brad Allen and his crew, the NFL released a video memo, a tutorial, if you will, just yesterday reminding teams of the eligibility reporting process with two video clips from the Lions-Cowboys tilt. It was narrated by none other than Walt Anderson, the league's senior vice president of officiating, training, and development. The video shows a first-quarter play where Lions offensive tackle Dan Skipper properly reports as eligible while clearly laying out the rule. Now, here's the quote. As a reminder to clubs and players, an offensive player numbered 50-79 to 79 or 90-99 to 99 is permitted to line up as an eligible pass receiver to allow the defense an opportunity to match personnel to avoid deception and to ensure fairness the player must immediately report the change in his eligibility status to the referee who will inform the defensive team and make an announcement to the stadium before the play the video then goes to the ill-fated two-point play essentially placing blame on the lions for the communication breakdown with allen however what the video does not contain and this is uh, kind of bizarre. It really never focuses on what Taylor Decker, the player who actually reported as eligible, does. Uh, it clearly shows that Decker is doing the universal signal for reporting as eligible while looking at uh, uh, referee Allen, who essentially looks completely disinterested. He later gets much closer to Allen and presumably verbally reports as eligible. So here we are. Uh, you've got this tutorial that comes out, but it really never focuses on what truly happened. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. It is Brad Allen's responsibility, the referee, to digest the situation at the time. Now, we had this past Monday, uh, Lions head coach Dan Campbell, uh, he came out and admitted to uh, having some designs of three linemen approach, mm -hmm. but that is deception for crying out loud. Uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, it was Brad Allen's um, responsibility to decipher the situation. And look, it really wasn't that crazy, was it? But what we have here is not when it's day, explained ahead of time to it you. It was explained ahead of time to the ref, uh, referees and the officials, and then they had a question about it. So they discussed it. They knew it was coming. They did. And uh, typically in situations like this, and it has been the case for a long time, 
uh, the NFL will deflect the issue and protect the referees in question. Now, immediately after the Lions-Cowboys tilt, we find that the NFL, more than likely, would demote Brad Allen and his crew. Uh, Look, this group has been involved in several officiating snafus. So instead of the demotion process, and maybe they're not going to work a postseason game, that remains to be seen. But what we do know is that Brad Allen and his crew will be the officiating crew when the 9-7 and Steelers face the 13-3 and Ravens uh, Saturday afternoon at 4.30. This game means absolutely nothing for the Ravens, who have wrapped up the AFC's number one seed. But for the Steelers, there's a whole lot going on. They need to beat whoever the Ravens put on the field, and they also need a little bit of help to get into the postseason. Uh, so, as you might suspect, social media being what it is, America not too keen on the officiating assignment um, that the uh, Steelers and Ravens will have. Uh, quite frankly, I don't get it. But, you know, let's just put our cards on the table. The officiating in the NFL has been shady, to say the least, throughout mm-hmm. the season. Uh, the NFL, I think, the shield, if you will, is battling a severe, and I do mean severe, integrity issue. Because you're talking about a league who is also in bed with several sports gambling apps. Now, at the end of the day, is this a conflict? Well, if you've got bad officiating calls during the course of any given NFL game, sometimes the byproduct is taking money out of people's hands when Mm -hmm. it really shouldn't be. Um, And then there's been some discussion as to whether or not, if you were to make officials full-time employees, would this have a direct result on the quality of what they're supposed to do? So if you're going to make a video, and I understand maybe the NFL said, well, we need, we need new clarity here and we need to reemphasize what the correct reporting system is. Why use the clip from the Dallas game at all? Use a generic clip showing the proper way to declare your eligibility. Because that but, places blame on the Lions there you and go. not exactly. Brad Exactly. And it also ends up being a fraudulent whitewash because you totally ignore what Taylor Decker was doing right. in your, your friggin' video. Right. No, and in the video, it correct. says you have to touch your numbers and verbally say it. And Decker says that's what he said to the referee. And I believe Taylor Decker. Yeah. And meanwhile, uh, Dan Skipper appears to be, you know, just a harmonious guy out there doing his job. Uh, he says he never said anything to Brad Allen. Meanwhile, there were several eyewitness accounts uh, on the field at the time that said that, yes, Taylor Decker did exactly what he was supposed to do. And that gets back to the point of what this is all about. It was Brad Allen's responsibility as a referee, and he's been. it, it was explained to him even before this what the situation was. Now, again, when Taylor Decker goes up and goes through this process of officially reporting, quite frankly, Brad Allen looked disinterested. He, he did, and he... From the moment Taylor Decker talked to him, he got it wrong. He said it was number 70 Skipper who reported and made the announcement to the stadium that it was number 70 Skipper. And misled the Dallas defense in so doing. Right. Right? I mean, just to be fair. Yeah, I mean. He, he's, he, he's, he kind of screwed up two teams there. He, yeah. he messed up, and they refused to say that. But at the end of the day, uh, again, don't know if he's going to be demoted. He and his crew. Uh, to the point of doing no postseason games, but he is going to be in charge of a game with a lot of postseason implications. And again, uh, a lot of folks in the country not very happy. No, and isn't that refreshing? 
<laughs> that, that, that for They're once, on the, the nation is, are, yeah. is taking the lion's side and not saying, well, they would have found another way to lose it put in the, the first put place. The refs, of course. Mic, put the ref's yeah. microphones in queue and record everything they say. Oh, there you okay. go. Okay. I'd or like make them full time. There you go. A little high tech there, Lloyd. I know. Big Brother Jackson is on the job. <laughs> oh, Lloyd Orwellian Jackson. Steve, take care. Thank you. All right. Happy New Year, folks. Yesterday at this time, there was a JAL flight burning on the runway in Tokyo, and uh, we brought you the amazing story that more than 370 people had safely evacuated the plane. No loss of life on the commercial jetliner. We did sadly lose. Uh, 500 members of the Japanese Coast Guard on, on the plane they collided with. But uh, five. Did I say five? Okay. Um, but the, you know, the enduring takeaway from that is, is folks, when they tell you where the exits are, Pay your best, attention. Your best listen. Leave your stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Get off the social media and get off your... <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and, and fi- develop a plan. On your phone and your device and stuff. Yeah. Those folks did an incredible job. Uh, we, we talked yesterday about the 90-second standard to, to evacuate uh, through just two exits, 90, you know, uh, the entire plane in 90 seconds. I don't know if they met that standard, but they came close enough so that everybody got off safely. And as you said, Jamie, eight infants. I just can't um, imagine the video that you see with the, the flames outside the window just holding your baby and hoping you make it to safety. So thank goodness everyone. And not just going into shock. By what you see, I know I might have been paralyzed with fear. fear just like, right, exactly. Well, some were, and others pulled out their phones and said, "Geez, this will make a great oh, post." Um, you know, instead of looking for the nearest exit, they pulled out their phones and started recording. It, it was a horrifying scene: the smoke in the cabin, uh, the flames outside of what appeared to be every window, at least from the vantage point of the, of the person that was filming. Um, but yeah, the big takeaway is make a plan when you get on. And then one of the things Tom Costello said on NBC was that when we had a similar uh, jet fire uh, on a tarmac here in the United States, that a number of the people that safely evacuated were pulling their rollies away from the plane. That no. they left with their carry-ons. So they grabbed their over, saying, went in the overhead bins and grabbed it. and Not important. Which just yeah. slows things. More time. Down. Taking more time. Yeah. So a lot of takeaways. Uh, from that. Uh, Jennifer Crumbly, uh, apparently, we, we, we know the phrase, the truth will set you free. Apparently, she thinks the truth will put her in jail. Well, yeah, the Detroit Free Press reporting the uh, mother of convicted Oxford school shooter Ethan Crumbly wants to block three witnesses from testifying at her upcoming historic trial, arguing that what they saw during that shooting is so gruesome and appalling that it could unfairly prejudice the jury. But more than that, her lawyer argues it's irrelevant to the mother's case. In the new court filing, Jennifer Crumley is asking the judge to exclude the excruciating and painful testimony of three eyewitnesses who saw and survived the horror of her son's crimes. One is a teacher who locked eyes with the gunman before he opened fire on her, shooting her in the arm just six inches from her heart. Also, an assistant principal who gave mouth-to-mouth to a dying teenager, teenage boy who had been shot in the back of the head, telling him she loved him and to hang on though the boy would not make it, and a student who was stuck in the bathroom with the shooter, frantically texting his family as he heard the gunman shoot his final victim, who was ordered to his knees before being shot execution style. And Jennifer and James Crumbley, they're the first parents in America charged in this mass school shooting. They're scheduled to go on trial, Guy, January 23rd. And defense is saying that those facts, those terrible facts, that could have been the direct consequence of the parents not doing their job and not fully disclosing the fact that they had a weapon, right? 
uh, those are irrelevant. Irrelevant, yeah. yeah. That's right. the whole point and why they're on trial. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Um, just that's going to be an interesting uh, ruling there. Um, that may get kicked farther than a John Fox punt. We'll, we'll see. Uh, meantime, uh, the market's trending lower, but boy, as you looked at year-end 2023, we saw quite a rally uh, for what we thought was going to be a re- recession-plagued fourth quarter. Ended up being a great year for the market. Uh, the S&P up more than nearly 25%. The NASDAQ, with all of its tech, up more than 43%. We talked to uh, Chris Alberta, president of Principium, and he said, don't get too lost in those numbers, though. Because he said that rising tide was lifted by just a few votes. Votes. Only about six or seven of the S&P 500 are really responsible for most of that growth, two-thirds of it. I'm sure you've seen a lot of these statistics, too. And if you didn't really own those six, seven, eight stocks, think of the Apple, the Alphabet, Amazon. Look, NVIDIA was up 239% on its own. So you know, when, a, when a client comes in with a portfolio and they say, look, I, my frustration is that I've been watching the news for the last few years and you know, I see this gigantic year and I see the, the ticker t- running on the bottom of the news, but I'm not doing nearly as well as, as the market's doing. Yeah, that's the norm. And so he's just saying readjust what you're seeing there in terms of, uh, you know, have a reality check on your own portfolio that, you know, if you've got a broad range of stocks, you weren't going to see that huge number, unless you had NVIDIA and Apple and some others. Meantime, nobody's stock is rising faster than Jim Harbaugh's. You know, after all that talk of will he go to the NFL, Adam Schefter is saying this could be the season. As, of course, the Wolverines prepare for Washington in the national championship game. They're favored by four and a half points. Say he wins it all. Schefter says if there is an NFL team out there that really wants him, that makes a really compelling offer, his sense is that Harbaugh would be interested absolutely in listening and entertaining that offer. Now, you guys remember they talked about an extension at Michigan. Harbaugh has not signed an extension. And he's hired an agent, Don Yee, who has NFL connections. And, of course, there's going to be openings. Smell New England. It just seems like there's a lot of smoke here. That's what Schefter is saying. So. It could be it. It could be the the swan song for Harbaugh, but he will have left this program, you know, as in, national champion. Yeah, yeah in a much better position than he found it. Yes. And you're right. He can say, well, I, I, I've done everything I came here to do. Yeah. You know, and bring the program, his alma mater back to prominence. There is all that stuff with the NCAA investigation that would be avoided, I think, if he leaves. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of external factors there yes. uh, as well. Uh, Meantime, a new study out uh, profiled in today's Detroit Free Press showing that (coughs) some good news when it comes to heating your home. We had a milder winter in December, as we know, so you can expect the average heating bill to drop about 21% or 27 bucks a month. Uh, It's also due to a drop in natural gas prices, which are nice. But when you look at this survey, which was done by a group called HVAC Gnome, (coughs) of the top 100 most expensive cities for utility bills, We have 10 cities in the top 100. Flint is fourth for expense, followed by Detroit, Dearborn. Uh, All three of those are in the top 20. Then comes Southfield at 22, Lansing 32, and Warren 33. And uh, you name the the, the biggest cities. uh, Grand Rapids coming in at 107th. I I don't know why they seem to be doing so much better. This is just Michigan or is this... 
across this is the country. The, this is the, they looked at the top 500 cities uh, in, based on population across America, looked at the cost of both heating and cooling. Uh, but, you know, a lot of it has to do with extreme cold, obviously, here in Michigan. Well, plays our weather. Illinois plays too. a role. I would think Chicago. Well, here's too, the thing. It's the windy city. Illinois was number one. We were number eight because our utilities do a pretty good job getting the cost of natural gas down. They play that market better than anybody do in no small part because we can buy in the summer and, and store. we store. That's right. And uh, yep. But the other thing that, that works against us is the age of our housing stock. That uh, most states Energy's have released through e- windows and such. Yeah, yeah not a lot of good insulation there. Yeah, if you yeah. were to go out with an infrared in Detroit, those great old homes yes. that we love so much, the great housing stock we have here, just not very efficient, and uh, and in some cases, not a lot you can do to improve that. When we come back, um, an interesting program up at Ferris State University trying to embrace the AI future and adjust its, its, its effectiveness as a faculty based on two students who don't really exist. Yes, they've enrolled bots. <laughs> What's behind that? We'll explore it next on JR Morning. Listen, I hear all the time, speaking of heating your home, uh, from the inside-outside guys about uh, how in-home air quality can really affect your health. And during the winter months, It becomes even more true as we're all bottled up inside our homes. And the folks at CNC Heating and Air Conditioning, who do such a great job, uh, really put a a bug in my ear about checking my home's air filters to make sure that they are doing what needs to be done to make sure that the air quality in my home is what it should be since we're spending more time indoors and at home. For 75 years, the Corian family has been making sure that our homes are not only comfortable and efficient, but also safe and healthy. And that's how they've become one of Michigan's most trusted heating and cooling companies. So do stay warm, cozy, and safe during the cold winter months. But make sure you get that furnace tune up and take a look at those filters with the help of CNC Heating and Air Conditioning. They've got carrier cool cash savings right now, a great promotion. If you need a new carrier furnace, it all starts with a really simple call. CNC Heating and Air Conditioning at 800 my furnace. That's 800-693-8762. You'll get that free 21-point comfort survey. Find exactly what you need. And if a new carrier heating and cooling system is the best option, you can get that installed tomorrow. That's how good they are. Visit cncheat.com. That's cncheat.com. Carrier, turn to the experts. It was many years ago uh, that I had... uh, you know, class up at uh, Central and uh, had a lot of interesting classmates, a lot of uh, still good friends. Never had a classmate like Ann and Fry. Two students who will be uh, enrolled as freshmen up at Ferris State University. And what makes them different? They don't really exist, except in the virtual world. So why do we need virtual students Let's learn more about it from Dr. Casey Thompson, Special Assistant to the President for Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Ferris State, where we've had so many good visits over the years doing our campus tour. Dr. Thompson, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Happy Wednesday. So take us behind the thinking of creating these students and then enrolling them. What will be their use? Yeah, so thank you so much for uh, giving us the opportunity to talk about this awesome research experiment uh, that we're conducting at Ferris State University this semester. 
So when you think about artificial intelligence, right, just from its most basic definition, it's all about how do we use these machines to think more like humans so that they can identify patterns and help us make decisions and judgments better, right? So when you think about just that from an artificial intelligence perspective, what better way to use that technology than to actually enroll that technology into our programs to help us better understand how we can develop our educational experience um, to be that much more impactful and enriching for our more traditional students. So we consider Ann and Fry, they are absolutely virtual students, but they're just coming to us, you know, from a different perspective. Um, we have our traditional students who will be there in person, and Ann and Fry will be a part of that entire process, and we'll hopefully learn quite a bit by the end of this semester. So, uh, Dr. Thompson, uh, when there is a lecture, you know, from a professor, will Ann and Fry be able to hear this lecture and take take notes? And <laughs> they will. Absolutely. Now, one thing that we have not yet determined, because we're still in the registration process, is whether or not Ann and Fry will be in the same classrooms at the same time. Um, they may take some courses. It's up to them to decide which courses they want to take together and other courses that they may take separately. Um, but yes, yeah, so they'll be able to not only listen uh, and take notes from the class, but they'll also be able to participate in learning sessions with students. So it's not just a one-way direction um, with information gathering, but they'll also in real time be able to use that information and interact with students if a student had a question or even if the professor uh, had a question, they'll be able to, by the end of the semester, uh, definitely process, process that information and then even inquire, well, can you tell me more? Can we talk about this more? Here is my perspective on this. And like, how awesome is that experience going to be for the students and the professor? Dr. Thompson, some people will think, why do this at all? What is the benefit? Well, you know, there's some great benefits to this because as we know, higher education is continuously evolving. And while we have what's considered to be the traditional student who comes maybe a year or two after high school, they come on campus and have sort of this live real experience, we also know that many students are actually delaying their educational experience. They're getting a little bit of you know, work and uh, work life experience under their belt and then they're coming back. So with this virtual, with Ann and Fry as our first AI students, we'll be able to kind of understand, well, how do you tailor that educational experience to students who may not just, you know, take a traditional path? How do we uh, uh, perfect that teaching um, between students and, and faculty? How do we actually help students who may not learn in, in very traditional ways? Ann and Fry will also be able to identify some of those gaps so that students, if they're in the classroom or not in the classroom, they'll all have this same excellence in their educational experience. So in creating Ann and Fry, how detailed, how precise are their backstories? <clears throat> I mean, is, well, is know, there a, a racial, geographic, political component to them? Uh, so there, in our traditional sense, in our human lived sense, absolutely not. Um, because Ann and Fry, while they do have a backstory, it's not one that's necessarily rooted in anything that may be um, 
specific to a race or specific to a gender. While, you know, we may have names that we picked for Anne and Fry, Anne and Fry are actually defining their own perspectives throughout this process. So while they, we did, did have our students, we had our artificial intelligence students who are currently enrolled in Ferris to sort of help us kind of give somewhat of a backstory okay. to what a student may feel uh, coming into uh, the educational experience at Ferris. We didn't want to over-construct that. So your AI we students were getting an education while creating these these profiles. Absolutely. So wow. everything that we do, absolutely. And they'll be a part of the process along the way. So this is not only an experience for Ferris State to learn, but it's also a real-life immersive uh, experience for our students that they not only created that backstory, but they'll also help as we guide Ann and Fry throughout the semester uh, to ensure that we're getting the best responses and the best sort of um, learning uh, from this experiment by the end of the semester. So, no, our students are lockstep with us along the way. Dr. Thompson, would professors be objective when it comes to grading homework and grading term papers that come from AI as opposed to an actual person? Absolutely, because if we don't treat this as if it's a, Ann and Fry are virtual students, but they're they're students of Ferris State University. So all of the guidelines, all of the things that help us guide our educational experience for a student who may be sitting across the aisle or online, Ann and Fry will have to abide by those same rules. If we see something that appears to be plagiarism, Ann and Fry will also have to go through those same type of uh, uh, um, uh, protocols that we would take with a traditional or an online student. They're not so going to be part of the curve, are they? Because I, send them I, home. I, yeah, don't, <laughs> right. Because you know I had enough problem keeping learn. up with the humans, much less competing exactly. against the bots. <laughs> right. So that's something we're going to have to learn. So you know what? If Ann and Fry can do it. You guys can do it, too. Like, cut off the drinking at 10 p.m. because <laughs> are showing you up. You're going to let them show you up? So, yeah, so this is sort of the rabbit for our students as well. Yeah, Fry's so going to no. be buying the last round of the sawmill every night. Forget his credit yeah. card. <laughs> right, there you go. <laughs> you know Big Rapids all too well. You know Big Rapids. I but do, yeah, indeed. So no, Anna, no, Ann and Fry won't be there. Uh, for the record, unless a student somehow takes them there for some type of student experience. But no, they, they will abide by the same rules and guidelines. It's very interesting. It and the whole program that you have there, just one of three undergraduate AI programs in the country, is very impressive. It is. And I think that, not I think, I know that people aren't aware of how progressive the, the entire program, the cybersecurity, the, uh, the um, project management, and the artificial intelligence program, how progressive it is at Ferris State University. We're actually leaders in that space, um, and we're excited to have Ann and Fry as just another example of all of the awesome work that comes out of the program. Will Ann and Fry have a physical presence in terms of, like, will there be pictures? Will there be faces associated with them to give them more life? Yeah, so for the first semester, there are no pictures. Uh, there are no faces that we're attaching to Ann and okay. Fry just yet. Um, that may be a phase two. But right now, it's more so just about the interaction and the learning. Um, and that it, and while we do have, we actually have roving robots and that sort of thing, okay. uh, that we may interject near the m middle of the semester. Fascinating. Uh, so, Fascinating. Yeah, more to come. More stuff. to come on that. Thank you so much, Dr. Casey Thompson.
the real so Dr. Thompson. So thank you, guys. Yeah. Yes. Have an awesome day, okay? You, you as well. And a reminder that we're making it even easier for you to stay connected to 760 AM wherever you go. In addition to just turning on the radio uh, in there in the kitchen or in your automobile, you can now listen to the great voice of the Great Lakes through any of your favorite streaming devices and audio apps at WJR.com, on your Amazon Echo, Google Home, Sonos Smart Speaker, you name it. We can deliver uh, through all of those mediums. Uh, available now on the Apple app and Google Play stores. It makes it easy, and you can go back and listen to the podcast or listen to the whole show if you missed it, so we, you can adjust it to your schedule, uh, not ours. Uh, come March 30th, hopefully we'll still be savoring some kind of grand uh, Lions performance in the playoffs, maybe even a Super Bowl. Uh, but by then, we will the winter fatigue will have set in, and we will have been devoid of football for a good couple of months except for the fact that there is a new game in town, the United Football League. This is after the USFL and the XFL merged. And the good news is the Michigan Panthers are going to be part of it. Mike Nolan, head coach, joining us live this morning on JR Morning. Coach, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, happy to be on with you guys. Good good news. I mean, was was there ever a doubt that the Panthers would be moving on to something this spring? Well, I, there might have been a little bit of doubt. There was certainly some, some suspicion when that when the two leagues merged. But um, look, at we're gonna we're gonna be in place, and I think that's uh, largely due to the fact that we had uh, we had a great uh, a fan base that, that was up there in Detroit. Um, the Ford Field is na- is naturally a great site to play a game, and uh, and we're back, so we're really excited about it. Coach training camp is uh, coming up uh, pretty soon too, right? Yes, it is. We'll start uh, sometime right about the middle of February run all the way to March, uh, the, the last weekend in March, March 30th, 31st, will be our opening game. So about a, uh, it will start, like I said, uh, in another, what, month and a half? Get ready to go. So this was the rebooted USFL, and it was in its early stages again, but now it's merged with the XFL, and now it's the United Football League going forward. That's right, United Football League. We've taken uh, their eight teams, and our eight teams have merged together and we've dropped eight, so there'll only be eight total again. There'll be four and four from each each of the two leagues, and uh, so there's actually going to be a talent pool that's greater than it was last year. And last year we had a pretty good talent pool, so the uh, the level of football, will, you know, will have a well, I guess you could say could step up one degree, and 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 uh, which is which is good for everyone. So it'll be a more, much more competitive eight team league uh, than the sixteen were for sure. Right, more quality hopefully in that talent pool. When do you start fishing for those players? Uh, great question. Uh, we have a, uh, they're calling it a dispersal draft. We have it this week, and then they have another draft that'll that'll be sometime at the middle of January, and that'll be the players that are on the eight teams that were, um, I don't want to terminate it, it's kind of a hard word, but the, the teams that are no more, the eight teams, the four from the USFL and four from XFL, um, will each draft off of those teams and Try to pick up as many of those players as we can, and there's several good players that'll be uh, that'll be out there. So I think all eight teams that are drafting, both the four XFL and the four USFL, are pretty excited about uh, you know upgrading their rosters. What uh, what went into uh, getting rid of those four teams on each side? Well, I, I really don't know that. That's that's for the business people. They put that together. You know, look at that. I wish it was 16 to some degree, only because that's more jobs for more people. Right. Um, but they did uh, they did knock it down to eight. Um, I think in the future, though, they're gonna they'll uh, they'll slowly add some teams back in. I don't know that in the future that their their target is to have eight teams. I think it's to have more. 
I don't know what that would be, like I said, but mm-hmm. um, I, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty certain of that. There's a lot of cities that they'd like to put a team in down the road. Mike, you've coached in the NFL before, and you say this is the most fun you've had. Why? <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's it's completely the people. The NFL has great people, um, but uh, every organization is kind of cluttered with, uh, in my opinion. I mean, every coach now in the NFL has an, has an assistant coach. I'm talking about, you know, like if you're the linebacker coach, you have an assistant linebacker coach, and there's a 2D line coaches. There's, two, there's just a lot of – there's there's – there's more than I think is necessary to really accomplish the goal of coaching the players. And one of the tough things about that is when you're coaching people, they don't, I don't know that you, and some people argue, you know, they get more attention, this and that. But for me, I think they just hear the same thing too many different ways. And, and I think it throws players off when they're trying to learn. But uh, the reason I think I said it more than anything else was, was exactly that. I think the people that were in the USFL last year and I'm sure in the XFL going forward but the USFL I, I just the people I worked with I, I really enjoyed it they were from the trainer to the equipment person to the IT guy to the we only had six coach full-time coaches um, as opposed to an NFL team that might have 22 we had like eight coaches I think six full-time and they call them two part-time but basically there's eight assistant coaches mm-hmm. it was just a smaller staff it was easier to manage and uh, we just had a lot of fun I thought the games were exciting the players were we're all, um, you know, everyone get paid the same as far as players go. So there's not, there's not any, I don't know, there's not any bad blood, I guess you could say, with, with certain things. But just everyone I seen that, that was there, I thought wanted to be there, was enjoying the experience. It's only about four months, four and a half months for everyone that's involved. So it's not a full round-the-year deal. Um, it, was, it was just a lot of fun. Like I said, I think more than anything else, we just had really yeah. good people, and, uh, and they were a joy to be around. Well, we're looking forward to the excitement that March 30th will bring. In the meantime, the other inhabitants of Ford Field aren't done yet. i got to ask you, uh, as a seasoned NFL guy, uh, kind of break down the playoff landscape for us. And what did you think about the uh, the, the, the call heard round the world? Thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> How about Dan Campbell and those Detroit Lions, though? I, and I know what I'm saying, them, Jim Harbaugh and the Michigan Panthers, or Wolverines. I mean, those two teams, those, those guys are playing – playing lights out but look I, I thought the play that you're talking about um it was you know that's that's unfortunate it's it's disappointing that they missed that call um when it happened i was trying to see the whole thing i couldn't tell if they were saying that the formation was illegal uh that they got in ultimately it was illegal that i you know i couldn't tell and then i also um uh you know i know this i know the frustration on dan's part really well because before the game the, the the officials always come to the head coach it's an hour and a half before the game begins and they ask him you know they say look at any do you have any special plays that we need to be aware of uh in the game and i know dan and dan said yes here's my special play and he explained it to him and they talked it out and uh as as they always would do and so when ha- what happened happened I can only imagine how frustrated you. Well, you saw Dan on the sideline. He was irate. I mean, he was so upset because, like I said, they take care. Of, you know, there's there's a process before the game that takes place that nips that in the bud and, and gets that all on the table. And so that was disappointing. Um, you know, look at it. it uh, I mean, ultimately, it cost them the game. I guess you could say. Well, and, and, and perhaps a, a number one seed, uh, at the very least, a number two. Got to ask you though, should the in, in those circumstances? Should the league own the mistake, uh, and 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 how should that be addressed? 
Well, I I don't know. You know that this is uh, this is going a little bit further than than the question, but I would say this. <laughs> I pers- we do I that sometimes. Yeah, that's right. I personally think that the official is very good in the NFL, but if you know, there's there's still mistakes being made and things like that. And and for me personally, I think they ought to have the official at the end of the game. You know, there's 12 minutes when the game ends for the head coach to get on the podium to answer questions. I think they need to put the official on the podium yes. while they're waiting for the head coach, and he needs to answer the questions and explain what happened. Right, not really? this yeah. like closed door one That's reporter right. pool thing. That's right. Yeah. Well, I will say this: it will make the game, it'll make the officiating better because, believe me, getting on that podium have to answer those questions. Um, you'll make darn sure that because the referee would be the guy to do it. He'll make darn sure that his crew is as good as they can be. And if a crew member continues to mess up week after week, just as the coaching staff goes, that coach or that official doesn't get to officiate anymore. And and that just is a way to make it better. I mean, believe me, what makes coaching, uh, one of the things that makes coaching good in the NFL is that fact that you're on the, you know, you're on the hot seat all the time. And so for that reason, you make darn sure you're as good as you can be all the time. But more importantly, or not more importantly, but as important is I just think it'll take that off the coach's shoulders as far as the coach trying to answer a question when the game's over. I mean, look how, look how angry Dan is. Look at every coach that you've ever seen when there's a call like that. He just, when he's on the podium, he, basically what he's doing is he's, continue, he's getting fined with every minute he talks about it. Yeah. Which, again, yeah. right. that's, <laughs> right. that's ridiculous. I mean, don't put him in that position. The guy that made the call, put him up there. Make him explain what happened. Don't make the head coach do it because all the head coach is going to do is just is just going to you know be upset and vent and, and see his money right. fly so, away. Yeah, yeah I, I think, think that's a ever, great idea. Yeah, yeah Coach Nolan, that's the it. that's the best chunk of wisdom I've heard in a it long is. time. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I, think, I really do think it would people would people would listen. People would listen to it. They would. I mean, it would get the fans. They'd say, "Hey, the officials on. Let's see what he has to say about that call," and mm-hmm. see what happens. Yeah. So, Coach anyhow. Mike Nolan, Michigan Panthers, UFL, their inaugural season. This combined, as you say, higher quality pool of talent that will be performing beginning March 30th. We're excited. I know you're excited. We look forward to seeing what this team looks like. I'm very excited as well, and I appreciate being on with you guys this morning. Thank uh-huh. you very much. Yeah, Coach. Thank you. Take care. Coach Mike Nolan of the Michigan Panthers. It's 845 on AM 760. Breaking news out of the Middle East. There was a uh, a memorial, if you will, for the assassinated uh, Qassam uh, Suleimi, the, uh, the general that uh, the American agents killed four years ago. Outside his tomb, there was a protest and a memorial of sorts. Well, there has been an explosion there. Uh, The latest death toll is 73 dead, uh, perhaps 100 injured, more than 170 injured, and they expect that death toll to rise. Uh, This was to commemorate, as I said, the fourth anniversary of his assassination. Uh, He was ahead of the the, uh, uh, the Kud Brigade and uh, was a nefarious uh, leader, and uh, this was an anti-terrorism a- action that took him out. Uh, but apparently someone has targeted those who were uh, memorializing him, and we'll get the latest on that in uh, future editions of Fox News at the top and bottom of the hour. Meantime, um, we have been mourning the loss of this uh, family in Northfield Township, uh, th- this uh, holiday blast at this home. 
trying to learn more about it. Uh, WJR Senior News Analyst Marie Osborne joining us live with the latest on what might have happened. Still so many unanswered questions, Marie. Happy New Year, everyone. Yes, this town, uh, this Northfield Township house explosion claimed the lives of four members of an Arkansas family they were visiting. And officials say they believe the house explosion was caused by a fuel air explosion. And they're still trying to figure out if it was propane or natural gas that caused the blast. They do not suspect foul play. Two people were injured in the explosion, 16-year-old Stephen Bragg and 72-year-old Richard Pruden. Both are still recovering from very serious injuries. Four other people, 51-year-old Hope Bragg, her husband Don, 53, their adult children Kenneth, 22, and Elizabeth Bragg, 19, all perished in this incident. The family was visiting Pruden, Hope Bragg's father, who lives in Northville Township. Don Bragg had a doctorate and taught at the University of Arkansas. Hope was still earning her doctorate there. On Facebook, the College of Forestry, Agriculture, and Natural Resources posted that the entire university mourned the tragic loss of these two colleagues and friends. The family was well-known and well-liked in their Arkansas community and active at their Catholic church where parishioners have held a candlelight vigil. A GoFundMe fundraiser has been set up to help cover the medical expenses for the two people who remain in the hospital. Now back to the explosion itself. Natural gas is common in Northville Township. It's a rural community. The explosion was extreme. Only small bits of debris were left behind. And the investigation continues with the help of Michigan State Police, as well as the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Just a really sad story, of course, but then the pictures, it was such an explosion that everything is sort of disintegrated. Right. What's interesting here is that had this happened in an area that had any homes nearby, it would not just been this house that would have sustained damage and possibly even uh, injury and loss of life. Uh, The debris field from this particular uh, explosion is massive. They've they've had to cordon off a whole area out there in Northville Township. And again, even the the police in the area are saying that as they go through the debris, there's not much there to, to assess or to look at. The debris is very fine. Yeah, because they're still trying to find out exactly where in the house the explosion happened. That's kind of hard to determine when you don't have anything really to look at. Nope, they. Uh, that's exactly correct. That, that is one of the, obviously, the primary things they're going to try to figure out is where in the house did this happen or did it happen just outside? Uh, we do know that DTE and Consumers Energy, uh, neither of them service that home. Those utilities have come mm. forward to say, no, we did not service this home. Uh, meantime, so it might have been some kind of a local co-op or something like that. Uh, but do we know then whether there were any calls uh, to that utility that did serve service that home? Or perhaps whether this was a rural propane situation? They're still trying to det- the, At yeah. least they're not speaking publicly. Officials are not speaking publicly of that. So we we don't know that as of yet. Okay. Uh, well, I just... Uh, we heard about the young man from Michigan Tech and uh, just the, the the future that he had planned for himself and so many dreams that died. In yeah, the, it's the lives yeah. lost in this family altogether yeah. visiting. 
and the holidays. An entire family, yeah. right. And it's a vigil on Saturday, too, right? Uh, 3 p.m. Yes. at Whitmore Lake. Yep, at Whitmore Lake. That's locally. And then, of course, there's vigils and uh, being held in Arkansas in the hometown where this family came from as well. They're absolutely devastated. It's a small town. Yeah. This is a this is devastation for that uh, area. Okay. Marie, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. All right, Marie Osborne with the latest uh, on that. Um, just a quick little uh, bit of political news. There's a new hat in the ring when it comes to uh, candidates that want to succeed Outgoing U.S. Representative Dan Kildee up in Flint Township. Uh, uh, someone known to this program, State Senator Kristen McDonald-Rivett, who we met up uh, in Bay City uh, while we were uh, on uh, one of our various tours. A really impressive uh, first-term senator. Uh, she will be joining the race uh, to uh, represent Michigan's 8th Congressional District. Uh, so we'll see how that goes for her. Let's try to end on an uplifting moment, which is that we have some new expert analysts coming <sighs> to the we're end, ending on this to the NBC yes. coverage of the Olympics. Oh, get get ready, Mike Tirico, because Snoop Dogg's coming. <laughs> uh, NBC oh announced goodness. that Snoop Dogg will become a special reporter at the Paris Olympics this year. And if you remember from the 2020 Olympics, he and Kevin Hart did some funny things, watching videos and doing some quote-unquote, analyzing of the sports that they were watching. I think this is just fun, and, and we'll get some more eyeballs on the Olympics. It was Snoop Dogg is hilarious <laughs> when he tries to explain what's going on in sports. Well, you know, and then there are those down times uh, when yeah. there's not a lot going on live and they're replaying stuff that maybe we've already know the outcome to, and so right. you do need something to spice up the dead air. Yes, and he said it's going to be locked and loaded. He's ready to go. He did a lot of tweets about it, so I think it's going to be really fun. Wow. Yeah, uh, an absurdist take. And, and the, the the clip that you showed us from 2020 when they're commenting on the dressage horse, <laughs> that, you know, that's like the dancing horses. Just that, Google. That horse is crippled. <laughs> that, horse, that horse doing the crip walk, yeah. I believe is what they said. Yeah. Uh, just look up Snoop Dogg, Kevin Hart, Olympic. You know, stuff and oh, it's hilarious. It's, oh. You'll be laughing. You have tears in your eyes. We were we were looking at it doing a commercial <laughs> break, and I, I almost could come. <laughs> it was so funny. It's oh. pretty funny. So it's if funny. he brings that brand, I think it lightens some things up. It you does. know, maybe not when the exact you know gun is sure. fired or whatever. But right, we got plenty of expert analysis of right. the of the legit sports. But th- those are the kinds of things that could be. And maybe we use them like Peyton and uh, and Eli. Right. You know, maybe there should be just a sub channel of those. Guys, of him the, watching swimming op- or something, yeah. or, the, or the, just the opening ceremonies. Oh yeah, um, you know. Um, we should say that if you, if you're looking to go see the uh, the Michigan Wolverines play down in Houston, uh, just very quickly, you might need to mortgage the house. Yes, um, things are very expensive. The lowest price for seats on Tuesday in the way way high up section was twenty three hundred dollars for two tickets. If you want to sit by the fifty yard line, eighteen. 18- thousand five hundred for two tickets and we know how quickly those markets move yeah and delta's got a couple extra flights going to houston those aren't cheap either at least a thousand bucks to get to houston a ticket but it's going to be worth it it's but it looks like you know what they might win a ship yeah so we (laughs) we that it may be worth that investment because those memories will be priceless we'll see you tomorrow at six till then all talk is next